Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything has a history. Simply everything you could possibly think of, like unpacking, shivers and bends. Do you know what? I want to do the history of rain, because it is pouring with rain at the moment, as you well know. I thought exactly the same thing. Um, (sighs) James sent me a message, and it was raining so hard that when I got my phone out, my phone broke. (laughs) It just stopped working. The the water seeped in. And I thought, do you know what? We should do the history of rain. We should, because I was sitting in the top of the house, squirrelling away on some... beavering away on some work... And the rain was just was just crashing all over the roof. And I just thought, how on earth are we going to record a podcast uh, when uh, God is punishing us with rain? Um, <laughs> I'm excited about it. I think rain's a brilliant idea. I think it is. Or we could do hosting, toasting and roasting. <laughs> Posting, boasting and my favourite current option is coasting, which is very mm. similar to the history of Loafing, laziness, <laughs> it's all about right, re- see, just resting on one's laurels. Yeah, it's not about, it's nothing to, It's nothing nautical. It's literally about, you know, kicking back, relaxing, which I think we all need to do. I think we're all getting very uptight and sort of working far too hard. However... R- roasting, James, let me just come in there. Uh, I was just reading do. about um, roasting of people's feet as a punishment in the Middle, middle Ages or as a form of torture. Mm. And... Um, uh, so it's a terrible picture, so sinister, was it? It was some. It was some poor woman who was. It was an image of her being prepared to have her feet roasted. So rather than of the feet roasting, she was being prepared, kind of washed and dressed, uh, ready to be uh, maimed over a fire. Very shocking. Did one die from such a thing? If you had your feet grossly roasted. <laughs> I, I reckon you could die. Um, I should think most people did die, but I think the whole point was that it didn't actually kill you. Oh, unless unless you were well done, James, and then and then, you know, you're in a bit of trouble. Well, maybe, it, maybe it, we should do roasting and coasting as a double bill. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, carry on. Sorry. <laughs> However, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam Willis? Who knew that the history of gin? is in fact all about crime in the 18th century, addictive architecture, liquid poison, female drinkers, William Hogarth and Dutch courage. Who knew? Or did you know that the history of embarrassment is in fact all about the science of blushing? It's about Charles Darwin, politeness and cultural taboos, social humiliation, cultures of shaming and Nazi Germany. Of course it is. Very good episodes those were too. You're wondering who is doing this introduction. Let me say, if history was an oak tree, towering mightily from an English hedgerow, powerful limbs of the past reaching out across the lanes into the present, this man, he would be an autumnal gardener, carefully raking up and storing those leaves, studying each one in turn to see what it would tell him, shrieking, aghast 
cast as eddies of wind blew leaves out of his reach into the oblivion of historical obscurity. Yes, he is the gardener of the eternal past. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. Uh, You write these afresh and so ably all the time, don't you? Um, I feel totally um, inadequate in comparison. However, you may well be wondering, who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode? Well, let's just say that if he were a leaf-related historian, and I've realised here that my cultural reference is back to something that ended in 2016, but if he were a leaf-related historian, he'd only be... Trifu Tom himself, battling <laughs> with the fungus-infesting naysayers of the past from his historical base at Treetopolis. He sustains the historical ecosystem, ensuring that the archives will survive, that the biggest historical questions get answered. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. <clears throat> Treetopolis, I like. Yes. <clears throat> That's very good. Hello, everyone. We're doing leaves, uh, which is an exciting autumnal theme. And um, as always with good histories of the unexpected topics, I had no idea at all about what we were going to do. I, uh, James kind of idly suggested it. I hopped on and then James regretted it. But then um, it was clear just how many different aspects of the past the history of leaves can illuminate. Um, I uh, was mulling this over as I was having my um, tuna salad the other day and I decided that edible leaves was a pretty damn good place to start um, archaeological remains you can work out what people were eating subsistence that's quite a good one you'll be able to study the history of food um, and then I also thought about things that were leaf shaped um, because I was having a, eating um, a particularly uh, leafy salad let me say uh, not one of those spiky leaves it was more of a it, it, it was it was like a classic uh, a classic leaf shape like they used to make spears. Um, and I suddenly thought, oh, you could probably do things which were inspired by nature as well. So those were my initial thoughts, James. But of course, uh, it being unexpected, I ended up doing something completely different. Yeah, my, my initial thoughts were were guided by a walk down by the quay. And normally at this time of year, there is a beautiful uh, seascape or treescape of, of trees and all sorts of autumnal colour. We are recording this at the end of September. However, I don't know whether you've noticed this year, but actually the changing, the turning of the leaves is very much later uh, than normal. Uh, I was thinking about uh, the fall, uh, autumn in New England and Japan and leaf peakers. So those people who go along and see those amazing autumnal colours throughout New England. But I was also thinking of different ways in which we might think about the meaning, function and interpretation of leaves. So symbolism of leaves, clover for luck, holly festive, olive branch peace, fig leaf modesty. I was also thinking of the consumption of leaves. You talked about food and leaves and eating leaves, but also from tea to tobacco, from legal to illegal substances. Thirdly, the beauty of leaves and the seasons, new life, rebirth, colour, leaf peeping, as I've talked about. Fourthly, superstitions associated with leaves and beliefs, four-leaf clovers, bringing holly inside, nettle eating, uh, which I'm <laughs> going to talk about uh, later on. Uh, the practicalities of leaves. Fifthly, gardens, burning, dealing with leaves. Sixth, leaves and the imagination, artistic use of leaves, leaf printing, childhood play and scrunching through leaves what parent or what individual doesn't remember themselves or like literally only the other day scrunching through leaves and this sense of 
play and imagination and innocence. More sinisterly, number seven, uh, is a war on leaves. And I'm going to be talking quite a bit about Agent Orange and the Vietnam War. So actually getting rid of leaves, defoliant and all the sort of long-term damage that that caused. And lastly, but, <laughs> but not least, leaves as homes for hedgehogs. When I told my daughters that I was going to do something on leaves, and I said, I've got no idea what to do. What should I do? And they said, Daddy, of course, it's all about hedgehogs burrow- burrowing in leaves and getting mm. warm. I said, of course it is, but I can't talk about such stuff on a very serious podcast like <laughs> Histories of the Unexpected, uh, which, of course, I've just done. <laughs> I bet there's some really lovely historical accounts of um, people in the past going out and finding hedgehogs burrowing into leaves. That would be the way that you definitely did that. Definitely. That easy peasy. Um, anyway, the point is, I think, James, we've just concluded there that leaves are fantastic. And um, obviously, uh, they're, a, they're a kind of marker for time passing. More, more than anything else, at the time of year with all the leaves turning, you know, it's um, it is a real significant marker in 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 each year, which I quite like. I like anything which is um, which you can link to the passing of time, and of course, leaves are such a brilliant example of that. Um, the, the the one thing that I came up to first was, of course, Rotro the Third, Rutro. Uh, Rutro the Great is Count of Perche and Montagne from 1099, James. He is the son of Geoffrey II, the Count of Perche. He is the daughter of Beatrix de Remerupt, which I quite like because my daughter is called Beatrix, not Beatrice, Beatrix. Uh, daughter of Hildouane IV, Count of Montdidier. I loved their names. Tremendous. Anyway, um, 1080 to 1144. Came across him because he's a crusader. He went uh, to the Crusades in the First Crusade. And I'm uh, preparing to go to Croatia tomorrow. Um, to be spending five days um, uh, talking about the Venetians. And whenever you talk about the Venetian Empire and its rise out of the fall of Rome and its keen positioning at the eastern end of the Mediterranean there, um, positioning themselves as the most influential middlemen between East and West. One of the topics you always come up against is the Crusades. So I've been thinking about that a little bit and the clash between East and West, between Christianity and Islam. Now, Rotru is an interesting chap because what he does is he uh, he goes... He's a very brave, a brave knight, and he fights in all sorts of um, extraordinary battles, including the Siege of Antioch. And he manages to survive. And when he returns, he returns to... Uh, a local monastery, the Abbey of Cluny. Um, and um, there are family links there through his mum. And what he does is he proves his sincerity in fulfilling his crusader vow by placing uh, a palm leaf, a palm frond, probably more specifically, brought back from Jerusalem on the altar. And um, James, you mentioned a little bit about leaves and symbolism. And one of the most interesting uh, ones you can look at is the palm leaf or the palm frond. Now, it was used here um, as a, a very significant um, symbol of crusaders. Um, as much as the, the cross was, with people kind of stitching pieces of uh, crucifix-shaped material all over their clothes, so too was the palm frond as a, as a symbol of... Um, having having fulfilled one's vow, but also is a very powerful fulfil- um, symbol of of the Orient, of the exotic. Um, and it's not just in this Crusader period where it becomes important. There are, as always, 
um, adopting things from the past. It's so rare. The more I do this, James, it's so rare where someone actually comes up with something completely new. And the use of the palm branch as a symbol of all sorts of things is certainly like that. So it's a well-established symbol throughout the Mediterranean world and the Near East. That's really important. Of victory, triumph, peace, eternal life quite a lot of different things. I mean, it, it, in ancient Egypt, it, it represented immortality. Um, it was palm branches awarded to victorious athletes in ancient Greece and also in Rome. I did come across a really interesting article, um, the, the Journal of Classical Philology, James, from 1908, which explores how it was popular in Rome but if you search through all the written documents, you can't actually find it in any of the Greek sources until a certain time. And the article went on to kind of explore how and why the palm frond as a symbol suddenly appeared and where did it come from? I thought that was fascinating. So, um, you know, coming back to this idea of the symbol itself having its own very lengthy history. It became so important in Rome that the Latin word palmer actually was used um, as, a, as a substitute for the word victory. Um, you have a lawyer who won his case in the forum would decorate his front door with palm leaves. Um, and then, you know, as Christianity comes along, it gets adopted by Christianity and it's used throughout the Bible and then throughout Christian practice as as symbols of all sorts of things as well. Usually as, as some kind of um, commitment to a vow and then the achievement of that vow. Often it's linked with martyrs representing um, sort of the victory of spirit over flesh. So there you are, you have um, this, this, a fascinating history of the palm leaf as a symbol um, which was adopted by the Crusaders and then you've got people like Rotru coming back and placing palm leaves on the altars to prove the fulfilment of their vow and victory and all sorts of things an exotic leaf to demonstrate that they've been to the Near East and they've come back alive Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad High quality fashion without the price tag Say hello to Quince I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Oh, lovely, Sam. I take your palm leaves and I raise them with a sort of plethora of leaves, a basketful of leaves. And I'm going to talk in a particularly unrelated way about the different practices and, and beliefs associated with leaves. This is a sort of ragbag to sort of potpourri of a sort of little discussion <laughs> here, uh, gathering it all up together. Um, and here I'm interested in the symbolism of leaves, as I was talking about, and superstitions and beliefs associated with leaves. And I want to start off with a little bit about four-leaf clovers. I've only ever found uh, maybe three or four four-leaf clovers. That sounds like quite a lot, doesn't it? Uh, four-leaf clovers in my lifetime. One was when I was interrailing around Europe and I was aged about 20, 2021, something like that. And I was in the gardens outside the Leaning Tower of Pisa and I was just picking through the grass, as I often do when I 
lie down for a relaxation on the grass and I came across a whole cluster of clovers, maybe a couple, maybe not a cluster, but maybe a couple. It was extraordinary. And this has a really fascinating history. Clovers that are associated with good luck uh, can be traced all the way 100 years back to Ireland where the four-leaf clover became a, a symbol of luck and it represents hope, love, success, faith. And did you know that there is only one in 10,000 chance that you will discover a four-leaf clover. The practice can also be traced back to Celtic priests, Druids, who believed that when they carried a three-leaf clover or shamrock, they could see evil spirits coming and have a chance to escape in time. So that's the clover itself. Four-leaf clovers were Celtic charms that were supposed to uh, ward off evil spirits, ward off bad luck. And apparently children in the Middle Ages also carried uh, carried four-leaf clovers. But in fact, the first reference that we have to four-leaf clovers and luck comes from 1877. This is the first printed reference. Uh, and it is a letter uh, to in St Nicholas magazine uh, from an 11-year-old girl who wrote, Did the fairies ever whisper in your ear that a four-leaf clover brought good luck to the finder? We go from four-leaf clovers, which everyone should go out and hunt for, to various superstitions that are associated with foliage and with leaves. And this was something that we looked at in one of our Christmas episodes, when there's a lot of concern about the kind of foliage or kind of leaves that are being brought into the house for decoration around Christmas time, and when they should be taken out of the house. There is, for example, a Victorian uh, little Victorian extract that dated from 1874 in Notes and Queries, which explains quite how worried the Victorians were about this. And it reads, it is still a prevailing idea in some places that if their decorations be not cleared out of the church by Candlemas Day, in other words, the 2nd of February, there will within the year be a death in the family occupying the pew in which a berry or leaf is to be found on the latter festival. Mr Glyde in his Norfolk Garland quotes an Ang East Anglian authority as follows. An old lady whom I knew was so persuaded of the truth of this superstition that she would not be contended to leave the clearing of her pew to the constituted authorities, but used to send her servant to see that her own seat, at any rate, was free from danger. If we move further than this, it's also thought that bringing holly into the house at any time other than during the festive period would lead to death, death of the person that was involved with it. Um, and it was also believed that there were different different types of holly and one was prickly and smooth and these were male and female and whichever was brought into the house first determined who was going to be the master for the year. So there is a, there's something associated to that. Um, and then there's also issues around what to do with the holly or evergreens once they have been taken down. Not only the timing, but also what should you do with them. Some people think that they should be burned as soon as possible. Others think that is scandalous and that actually they should, you know, treat their decorations with some sort of ceremony and reverence. Uh, some fed them to farm animals to ensure that luck was, was shared. 
um, and others, you know, as I said, wanted to wanted to burn them. So there's a whole range of sort of variation of ideas about that. But all of this comes to what I really wanted to talk about, which was nettle eating contests, eating the leaves of nettles. <laughs> and there, I've been reading a wonderful book uh, by uh, the author Jeremy Hobson, which is called Curious Country Customs, which I was given as a gift a while ago by a very dear friend of mine. And this nettle-eating contest can be traced to Marsham in Dorset in midsummer, so around the, the 18th of June. And there are a group of people meet at the Bottle Inn, and they are each given two feet or 60 centimetres of nettle stalks and given an hour to chew through them and this the winner is of course as you could imagine the person who is able to eat the longest amount of nettles so they have the longest stalk at the end of it and this was thought to stem back to the 1980s there were two farmers who were having a debate. You can imagine this, can't you, in the pub? Two farmers who were, who were who were arguing with each other about who has the longest nettles on their land. And so in order to settle this debate, they established something called the longest nettle night. And each contestant brings with them a uh, their their nettles and they compare them. But it wasn't just that they had to that they had to um, compare them, they also had to eat these nettles. And one Alex Williams brought along a five-metre specimen, and then this began the sort of the start of the nettle-eating competition. And I'll give you some recent winners. Uh, in June 2010, one Sam Cunningham, who's a fishmonger from Somerset, won by eating 23 metres of nettles. In June 2014, uh, a chef from Colleton in Devon, very near us, uh, Philip Thorne, won by eating 24 metres of nettles. And here is, I think, uh, uh, the overall champion in 2017 was Jonathan Searle from Solihull, who munched his way through 70 feet of nettles. Uh, the women's prize goes to Kate Ribton, uh, who also from Somerset, who ate uh, 28 feet or 8.5 metres of the plant. I'm not sure whether these... I'm assuming these are raw. So you'd literally be munching your way through raw <laughs> nettles and yes. rather than cooked. I think that's yes. the point in it. And how on earth do you manage to do that? If it were me, um, I think I'd pick a very... I think I'd cheat. I think I'd pick the nettle, the nettle leaves off and just have the stalk. <laughs> so there we are, Sam. Nettle eating. Very good. Very good. Um, I, uh, it's amazing how often we come back to the idea of uh, our objects that we discuss as being historical documents in their own right. And of course, uh, Leaves is a classic example of that. And I came across a, a really interesting archaeological report from the 1980s of a Soviet archaeological dig in Saudi Arabia. Fascinating stuff. I'd love to know more about that and how they got access and what they were doing. Anyway... They found 22 inscribed palm leaf stalks. So we're back to palms, but we're, this time we're thinking of palms as, as a, um, 
as a, as a as a means upon which you can write. And they were discovered at a, a site called Rayburn One um, around about uh, the year. Well, I mean, the oldest were kind of 800 BC, and uh, the, the the most recent 600 AD. And I love them because I've not seen anything like this before. It's um, the Hadramatics or Hadramatic script. Um, which is it's the easternmost of four known languages of the old South Arabian uh, group of, of Semitic, basically Semitic language. And I've not come across this before, or particularly the way that they'd written. It reminded me of runes, and the the imagery was fantastic. They're, they're a bit like hieroglyphs. So you've got um, there's one which is like two C's, but back to back. There's one which is like a, a sort of an old traditional uh, hay fork, so a kind of a large trident, um, one like an hourglass on its side. There's a circle divided into two, um, an F, but with many more horizontal um, horizontal strokes, about five or six. There's a W, but uh, or an M, but put sideways. There's a nine or a B. Um, there's another one which is an H. So a lot that's familiar. Um, but also uh, um, a lot that's that's unfamiliar, and in that it really did remind me of Viking runes. Now, this whole question of of how you write, and bear in mind these are minuscule. Um, so it's actually a chapter in the history of minuscule, tiny writing, James, which I think you'd be interested in. But also, what they've done is they've developed the particular type of writing to be able to write on those palm stalks. And it's interesting that another different type of script was developed to write on palm leaves. So uh, the, the the use of palm leaves, particularly for illustrations, um, very interesting South Asian um, origin, South Asian script, particular, particularly South India. Um, but it's believed that a lot of uh, different languages, Balinese, Odia, Burmese, Tamil, um, Khmer, um, were actually created because of an adaption to you to, to be able to write on palm leaves because angular letters don't work because you tear the leaves apart. And if you look at any of those uh, languages, but Burmese is a particularly good one to look at, or Balinese, um, you'll notice how curved everything is. So we got here the challenge of writing on small things, which led to this curious um, script found on uh, the writing of palm stalks um, uh, well, 2,000 years ago, um, and also uh, the more sort of South Asian curved writing, which is believed to come from people writing on palm leaves. Um, it wasn't just writing on palm leaves, but palm leaves themselves used uh, for for imagery. And there's an enormous body of Indian religious texts um, which were which have survived and which have been illustrated throughout with palm leaves. It's, but because it's the use of a palm, it's a particularly kind of humble or accessible form of book. It's both fragile, it's also resilient. Um, it is a really, it's a fascinating medium for early writing. And the way they actually created these manuscripts, you've you basically got a series of unbound folios, which are prepared uh, and the leaves are treated, they're trimmed. And then um, you've got the writing which goes directly onto the, the palm itself. Uh, and they're often bound using cord. 
um, sort of with holes. The, the cord is threaded through each each leaf, and then with wooden covers on top. And those wooden covers are then left often in a monastic library, where they're then discovered uh, thousands of years later and end up in places like the Met Museum in New York, which is a particularly wonderful collection of them. Uh, anyway, so the point is that there is a wonderful and fascinating, interesting history of people writing on leaves, particularly palm leaves, particularly in South Asia. Oh, Sam, that sounds right up my street. Um, what I'm going to talk about is defoliant. So, in fact, the war on leaves. And I'm going to talk a little bit. Well, I'm going to talk a lot about Agent Orange and the Vietnam War. And this was where the Americans used herbicides in order to defoliate the terrain so that they would be able to much more um, clearly see the enemy. And I came across a wonderful report, very, very long. I, of course, didn't read it all, but skimmed through it, full of all sorts of really useful information on this. It's called a report called The Use of Tactical Herbicides in the Vietnam War. And it was written because the use of Agent Orange has become an enormous controversy. Uh, it was a controversy at the time, but also it is the environmental and health damages that it that it has caused but basically what it shows is that from January 1962 to February 1971 the US Air Force tactically deployed herbicides in combat operations and this was primarily so that they could have greater visibility on enemy controlled or contested jungle uh, so that they could find base camps weapon placements storage sites expose infiltration routes. As, as you know, anyone who knows anything about the Vietnam War will know that it was a really difficult jungle terrain in which to fight in. Anyone who's seen any number of Vietnam films will know exactly how difficult it is. So one of the things that they, the Americans tried to do was to basically get rid of all the camouflage that people would have had. And they did this by spraying these tactical herbicides along enemy lines, so along communication lines, transportation routes, base perimeters, all of those kinds of things. Um, and about 95% of tactical herbicides were done through fixed wing aerial applications. So in other words, they were from aircraft that would basically fly over the terrain and then spray it. Another 5% was used by helicopters and ground equipment that were given to US Army Chemical Corps and combat engineers and they would go around spraying other other areas from the ground or from the boat. I came across one f film footage of uh, one of these units in action and it was quite ex absolutely extraordinary unbelievable footage of Troops in a riverboat in Vietnam in February 1969. Very grainy image. If you Google it, you will probably be able to find it. But they are basically motoring along uh, the riverbank. And then in the back of the boat, there are literally massive drums of this chemical agent. And they unscrew a cap, put in a nozzle... And then bare-chested, hold this nozzle, which is rather like a, what you'd get at a petrol station or gas station nowadays. And they were then spraying at high velocity 
the riverbank as they were going along it. It was absolutely extraordinary, without knowing anything of the damage that they were doing with this. If you go, if you start thinking about what chemicals are being used here, it's really shocking. And really shocking indeed. And you've got some of the most toxic chemicals. One of the active ingredients in Ancient Orange is a mixture of two phenoxy herbicides. Um, one of which is is a dioxin, uh, which is called TCDD, and it's the most toxic of dioxins uh, known to known to man. So they are using this. Apparently, if you put uh, if you put a small amount in the drinking water in a city like LA, it would kill the entire uh, it would kill in the entire population. So you can see how dangerous it is. And this was used. It was sprayed over uh, over three million, three point one million hectares of forest. So not only did it erode tree cover, forest stocks, seedlings, but also it decimates the animals that are living there and has really awful implications on the health of the local population. And I read some accounts from doctors who were seeing really bizarre malaria type symptoms in weeks after Agent Orange had been sprayed in the area. And I think still the long-term effects of it are still being being sought. If you have a look at a, at a map of Vietnam, I have in front of me a map of Vietnam uh, that's looking at uh, the aerial spray missions between 1965 and 1971. And there is red shows the places where these spraying took place. And it is dotted all over all over Vietnam so it's really extensive it's estimated that they that they sprayed get this Sam um, it, it it um is estimated that they sprayed nearly 20 million gallons of it and this will this for comparison it's uh, the report says that uh, an Olympic sized swimming pool uh, takes 660,000 gallons so you can imagine how much of this stuff that they are there you know that it that is being used now there is evidence that it's still affecting people today uh, and i came across a really useful report on the north dakota department of v veterans affairs so these are the vietnam vets and there was an interview with uh, dan stenfold who's president of the north dakota branch of Vietnam Veterans Association um, and he's interviewed about this um, and he says you know we killed the jungle with backpacks sprayed so we had a good a good perimeter and then he goes on to say that one tablespoon of Agent Orange in the drinking water of the Los Angeles would kill the entire city and he adds that that toxicity is coming back to haunt not only veterans but also affecting their children. My dad, he reports, was a Vietnam veteran. My brother has brain cancer, believed to be caused by Agent Orange, passed through my father. And so it goes on that he's arguing that all of these you know, ill effects stem from this. I had a close friend who died five years ago from a lymphoma, um, uh, and he's, he's thinking that he, he traced it all back 
back to that. One of the other really interesting things is looking at oral history accounts of people who were involved in Vietnam and who actually saw what was going on. There's a brilliant oral history archive, oral history project. Um, many interviews conducted with uh, by a guy called Stephen Maxner. Uh, and then the transcripts are available online. You can also listen to them. Uh, but he interviews a, a guy called uh, Michael Harris, who, who's from Texas, and who was drafted uh, to Vietnam when he was away at, at um, Oregon State University. And he's asked, uh, they started using orange, Agent Orange and other uh, defoliants. He says, yeah, very early in the war, along the riverbanks where we were working, did they use it very, where you were working, did, did they use it very much? And he replies, I remember seeing a helicopter spraying one time. We were definitely in areas that were sprayed heavily. The Rungsat Special Zone, which was a kind of, kind of southwest of Saigon, not too far, was a mangrove swamp. And it was just annihilated with Agent Orange. You could see that everything was dead. It was an area we would go into to test fire weapons. And we did carry out operations in there. And surprisingly, the Viet Cong were there and would come at us. And what about spraying of Agent Orange by 123s and larger aircraft? Do you remember that? And he replies, I don't recall seeing any of that in the air, but I saw the results of it. Um... The Aircraft 7 flew overhead and sprayed this stuff and it landed on me. Um, our boats, the engine, would rig up a system and then we would run the water through the, the engine and have a warm water hose to shower at the back of the boat. And we were subjected to it through the water, through food, through ice, through everything. So there we are, Sam. The, the, the sort of deeply disturbing history of Agent Orange and the destruction of leaves. Yeah, very good indeed. And if we're all out there just exploring and, and exploring the world and enjoying the leaves falling off the trees and have a think about what it would be like if that was uh, if that was man-made destruction. Very upsetting indeed. Um, thank you all for listening to our History of Leaves. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, do please follow me on social media for more updates. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, please check out my other podcast, The Mariner's Mirror Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at James Dable. You can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook and we have a website, historiesoftheunexpected.com and if you want to be a patron, head over to Patreon and you can sign up to support us in what we are trying to do to change the way in which people think about the past. It would be greatly appreciated. Any money you can offer will help increase the number of episodes we release. Thank you very much indeed, guys, for listening, as always. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.